Hi everyone, welcome. Um, my name is Lisa Ames and I'm going to be hosting today. I'm operating executive here at Norwest Venture Partners and I'm part of the portfolio services team. And our, our mission is, you know, or my mission as an operating exec is to leverage my years of marketing experience to work shoulder to shoulder with our companies to help them be more successful faster. And part of that mission is to provide education and insights to our companies. And I'm excited to see so many of you guys here today that I work with all the time. And today we're broadening the lens a little bit and inviting, we've invited the broader marketing community because Chris has some great stuff to share. And I wanted it to be known, um, not just with our portfolio companies, but all of our friends in marketing. And so just a couple of housekeeping items before I jump in and introduce Chris. We are recording this session, and so if there are any folks from your teams that weren't able to join us today, I'm going to be sharing the recording um, afterwards, so nobody will miss anything. And um, it's a little bit weird, I have to say, to be on, a, I think this is the first webinar I've been on for a while. I've been so used to Zooms and seeing people's faces, but I'll pretend that I'm seeing you and hope that you'll be active in the discussion as, as we get into today. So... But so even though it's a, it's a webinar, we're not going to kill you with slides. In fact, we don't really have any slides except for what you see here on the screen. Um, and we maybe have one more after that, but we're just going to get to hear Chris and all his great insights today. So with that, I want to introduce our, our special guest today, Chris Walker, who's the CEO of Refine Labs. He's also the host of the wildly popular State of Demand Gen podcast. I'm a huge fan. I've been listening for a while. And uh, and I know we have a lot of your fans here on the line today, Chris. So welcome. And I want, want you to take it away. And I know you're going to give some insights today about how the rules of digital advertising have, have changed. You're going to kick it off, I think, with some prepared remarks. And then we're going to leave plenty of time for people to engage and ask questions and, and join the discussion. So take it away. I think prepared remarks is a little bit generous. If anyone <laughs> I have like some chicken scratch here for some notes, but um, I love to, and maybe we could take the slide down so everyone can can see me. That'd be awesome. I like to just talk broadly because I end up in places that I didn't expect, and I find as I do these things a lot, I find it very valuable to sort of. Uh, some people would say like wing it, but I know this stuff deeply, and and so look forward to sharing the things that I have with you. First off, thanks to Lisa. And all the folks at Norwest Venture Partners for setting this up. I'm thrilled to uh, thrilled to be here with all of you. I'm going to try and speak for somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes. I have a roadmap to go through, and then I'm really looking forward to everyone getting into um, getting into the Q and A, um, where we can get a lot more tactical and specific about things that you're working on. And happy to go in any direction, and and certainly try and help as much as I can. And so, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Chris Walker. I started a company called Refine Labs about two years ago. We currently uh, work with about 30 enterprise SaaS companies throughout North America, EMEA, and APAC to help them transform their demand generation programs, starting with paid and then moving into organic and then eventually moving into um, what I would consider true ABM in a one-to-one -one highly personalized model. I think most companies today run, say they're running ABM, which is just demand marketing with account firmographic targeting, which is I guess by definition, ABM, I just see it as a little bit different if we're actually going to go through and buy the software and do those different things. And so to give a little background, 
about me. I've been in B2B marketing my entire career. I started in hardware for the first five years of my career, profitable, big, big company hardware, and then moved into venture funded companies for the next three or four years of my career and then started this company. But while I was at the hardware company, I did a couple of interesting things. Um, one is I started two e-commerce companies from my bedroom. One of them that I grew to, to mid six figures within a pretty short period of time on the back of simply just understanding organic and paid social marketing, as well as Amazon search ads. And I remember yesterday was actually Amazon Prime Day for anyone that celebrated Amazon Prime Day. And I, it was either 2013 or 2014. Um, I was 23, 24 years old and made $32,000 in one day on Amazon Prime Day, which was pretty cool, which was purely driven just through being good at SEO and SEM inside of Amazon. Um, and so I learned a lot of digital advertising strategies in an e-com performance marketing, direct response, trans direct transaction revenue model. Um, and then I moved into B2B companies and I was fascinated at how they looked at um, the performance of their advertising. All they would do is just look at a lead and consider a lead revenue and not actually track further down about their return on ad spend or different things like that. And I still encounter companies that are hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that don't actually scrutinize the $500,000 a month they spend in Google ads relative to the return. And so I had some serious discipline coming from it, building an e-commerce company with my own money, spending my own money on ads to look a lot deeper and have a lot, care a lot more about the ROI of those things. Because if the ads didn't generate sales, then I lost my own money. And so I just have a, a deep respect for um, return on ad spend and measuring those things. Now, I eventually moved to a venture funded company called Vapotherm around 2017. They were about 30 million ARR when I joined. And at that point, they it was 100% outbound field sales with a couple SDRs that were booking meetings for the field sales team and the field sales team was sourcing a lot for themselves. Um, and I got into that company and just looked, started to look at the business metrics, customer acquisition costs, sales cycle length, win rates. And I was just like, why are we doing go to market this way? Like, what if instead of having our salespeople try and contact people that don't want to buy right now and try and convince them to buy, what if we did broad over the top marketing which drove more people to come to us ready to buy. And at the same time also helped make outbound more efficient because a lot of people know who we are, what we do and the clinical data around that and all those, all those different things. And so I went on a mission over the next two years um, in a B2B environment, testing a ton of things. I built this pretty much by myself. So everything from community management inside of a Facebook ad to marketing automation between HubSpot and Salesforce to all of the content, building a video podcast with physicians. I did it all. So I have a very big breadth of skills and a deep respect for how paid and organic can work together. I've actually, um, I said it on a podcast yesterday, I've been having a lot of uh, CMOs that talk to me about how to set up their org structure. I'm, I'm encouraging them to consider the idea that brand and demand belong under one leader. Um, most companies will split that into two leaders and they'll think about brand as like PR, things that are difficult to measure, brand guidelines, analyst relations, Maybe that group would do a podcast and then, and then demand, which is all just like pure lead gen MQL focused. And I'm like, what if we put these two functions together and actually thought about driving demand for our product? And so during that time at Vapotherm, the reason that I was able to build the things that I, I built that we still use today and have continued to iterate on, and the reason that I was able to learn all the things that I was able to learn is because that company didn't fall under a lot of the assumptions that software companies fall under. They didn't have a necessity for a tremendous value, uh, volume of MQLs and care a lot about cost per lead. 
they didn't care about attribution. They actually probably didn't even know what attribution meant at that point. When you look at at the marketing channel level, the only thing that that company cared about is, are we generating more pipeline and are we closing more business and how much is it costing us to do that relative to other ways that we can get revenue? And so I had that ingrained in my mindset and built the entire model around that metric, which seems like really simplistic and seems obvious, but I'm fascinated how many companies don't think about it that way. Because if you thought about it that way, it actually, when you change that part of the mindset and what you're actually optimizing for, it changes almost everything that you do at an executional level. And so when I think about what's going on in the digital advertising space, my company probably spends somewhere between three and $5 million a month across digital, uh, digital ad channels for the companies that we, uh, we do work for. And I interact with probably somewhere between 50 and 100 companies a month about their challenges with something like running Google. We've been running Google ads at $500,000 a month for the past four years. Our cost per leads are going up. Our conversion rates are going down. Our unit economics are really starting to hurt. And we don't know anything else to do. We don't have an organic content strategy. We don't know how to execute paid social. We don't know how to do a video podcast. We don't know how to do events that our customers love and will continue to come back for. And so that's a really tough spot to be in as a company and something that I don't recommend anyone try anyone falls under. And if you are in that position, trying to take some of the things that I, I communicate today and try and implement them, because it's a really tough spot to be in. Everybody grew up, including me, in a time where everything digital was intent-based and transactional. And so the things where people grew up were Google search and affiliate website traffic marketing which are both things where people have clear intent to get something when they land on that page or they make that search. And then it's our job to give it to them. And so we give it to them and then we're trying to move them into some type of conversion, most often a demo. I'm surprised how many companies still do eBooks, but um, somebody demonstrates intent clearly to you. And then your job is to put your ad there and try and convert them. Now, that stuff is great for places that I would consider intent channels where people declare intent for a specific thing. But what I would consider web 2.0 or social or user-generated content or any of those types of places, all of the main platforms that have emerged and have incredible consumption and attention of B2B buyers today, like LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, podcast, Reddit, I could go Twitter, I could go on for a long time. None of those channels have any intent on them. And so companies take a Google paid search or a Google SEO mindset that's built around intent and then try and copy and paste it into channels where people have no intent to get whatever you're trying to give them, which is why, which is, I think, the fundamental shift in this model. And so the reason that they do those things is one, they grew up in the Google era and they're just trying to copy and paste things from Google into Facebook, thinking that it's going to work. But also marketers that even know that that stuff isn't working, that run $50,000 a month in LinkedIn ads to get ebook downloads, and they listen to my podcast, and they do the measurements, and they see how bad it's working, they can't do anything else because they are handcuffed by the idea of attribution inside of their company where they're not going to get budget unless they come back and say, we got 500 leads for $100 each, I can go back and spend more money. As opposed to we spent $50,000 last month and we got four customers for 275k ARR at this you know this cap payback 
and therefore we should keep spending money. It's the difference between looking at revenue versus looking at a value that you assign to a lead that is unknown. And so there's, there's that component, which would be attribution. And then generally, I find that for whatever reason, B2B companies tend to move into advertising channels with an incredibly transactional mindset where I'm going to do something and I need something back out immediately, which otherwise could be considered performance marketing. And when you're looking at complex, multi-stakeholder, 100K plus or even 30K plus ACV deals and trying to operate in that way where somebody has no intent to buy your thing when they're on LinkedIn, and you're going to try and get them to convert on an ebook and cold call them and think that they're going to sit on a demo and just waltz their way through a sales process and buy is just completely unrealistic. And so the core principle that I'm trying to communicate here is the idea of in your mind trying to decide and define which channels are do people have intent to buy the things that we that we're selling. In those channels, we should try and run performance marketing. We should try and convert them as much as we can. And we should measure it on performance-based metrics like we use for Google. And in awareness channels, we need a different strategy because people do not have intent to buy our things. So what are we trying to accomplish? What are we going to measure on? How are we going to define success? I think needs to be completely rethought in that space, which is honestly the most effective advertising channels today are the ones that are awareness channels and for the most part, I see most companies just completely missing in terms of execution because of the, the assumptions that I just mentioned. Another thing that I just want to talk through on, which is interesting, and maybe there's a couple people in the crowd from the B2B side or the product-led side, is that it's a rhetorical question, but I've never asked this before. I think it's interesting is, where did this model come from? Who thought of it that what you do is you take some like low intent offer, like an ebook. And then you just buy as many ads as you can and try and get as many people to convert on it and collect leads for as cheap as you can and deem that success. Like, where did that come thinking out loud here, but marketing automation vendors that made more money when your database got bigger in 2011, ad platforms that make more money when you see more conversions inside of the platforms that encourage you to spend more money regardless of the ROI if you're not looking at it the right way. Like those are the two that I can think of about where this model started. And so when, when I try and reverse engineer, how did we actually get to where we are? Some of the things that I think about are that a majority of the ad tech platforms make most of their money on B2C companies. And so the strategies that have been developed for Google and Facebook have been predominantly driven through what's successful in a direct response e-commerce play to sell a $100 bag or $50 pair of sandals or a $60 hat where you can clearly try and measure we got that we got made $60 in revenue and we spent $20 to get that customer and that based on our margin that's a good buy and then people tried to copy and paste that into enterprise saas and measure on the lead as if it was actually transaction revenue. And then for whatever reason, not measure anything beyond the lead. I think that historically, because I was a marketer in 2013, right? In a B2B environment, like we didn't have the tech infrastructure at that point. Some people probably were using it, but I didn't have it to even measure 
whether or not connecting our advertising and the leads we created all the way to revenue. But now we have all of those things. And so as I started to look, and I've probably audited at least 50, at least 50 companies in the past 24 months that are spending heavy on paid social and look at all of the revenue. And when they're spending that much money on paid social or just paid in general, digital advertising, let's call it that, when they're spending that much money, it's 100%, everything is 100% measurable. Everything is tracked. And so when everything is tracked, it's so strange to me that I go into their CRM and look at the revenue and then work backwards to where the people came from. And a lot of the advertising leads generated almost no revenue. And for whatever reason, people don't look at that gap. And I'm just encouraging people to do it because it's empowering. If you look at all of the performance marketing ads that you're running and then scrutinize it against revenue and then take cost against revenue and decide whether that CAC payback is acceptable to your business, it's empowering for marketers because I take that to executive teams at least once a month and say, look, this is what's happening right now. Here's what you're doing. Here's the data. We're running Google ads and we have a 48 month CAC payback. And the reason is because we're using broad terms to drive people to ebook downloads and then thinking that because they downloaded an ebook that we're going to be able to cold call them and close them. And it's just not the way the world works anymore. And so it can be empowering because you can show executives that which can start to help you adjust your strategy, which I'll talk through in great depth later on in the talk. So the next topic that was promised on the agenda, which I'm excited to talk about, is the idea of why measurement and attribution needs to shift in, the, in, in this new age or this new era of marketing. And so I talked through a couple of the things. One is me measuring on leads. I think that most companies at this point have the capability to measure on pipeline and revenue, and they should move to that because it's just a much, much better aligned with what their sales team needs, much better aligned with what their business wants. And it'll just make you a better marketer to change your mindset around that because it'll show you all the things that aren't working. If you, when you start looking at qualified pipeline at minimum, and then you start to work backwards and you're like, why are, why are all these leads that are coming from Google falling off between MQL and SQL? And then when I saw those exact things, because I've run all the, everything that I talked about, I've run all of these plays, I would go in and I would think about, huh, like we just collected a hundred leads on, on LinkedIn ads and none of them got to SQL, but they're all firmographically, they all fit. They all work at accounts that can work. They have the right job titles, like what's going on. And then that light bulb went off to me. I was like, huh, it's because they don't actually want to buy anything. It's because they don't have, they don't have buying intent. And so they don't want to hear from a sales rep. They're going to resist that call. They're not going to take it. And then it started to make a lot more sense to me of we need two things in digital advertising now if we're going to pass a lead to sales. We need fit, which should be agreed upon at, at the executive level all the way down to marketing and sales before you start advertising, which is this is how we define whether or not an account is a fit for us. Firmographically, it's super easy. We want to talk to these types of people at these types of accounts that marketing can then go and target those accounts. And when we target them and bring them in, those are the, the accounts sales wants. Pretty simple, like marketing strategy. Some people call it ABM. I call it just like marketing fundamentals. But you have fit. But what most people overlook is intent. And I'm not talking about intent data. When I talk about this, I always look at declared intent, first party intent. And so, and when I'm talking about intent at this level, it's only the person asked to talk to our sales rep about buying our products and they didn't. And if you can get to that type of system, 
then you have fit, firmographically qualified fits that would love to talk to your sales rep. You might have fewer of them, but your sales rep's going to be dramatically happier because they're going to win those at seven to 10% versus 0.1% that, uh, you know, a performance marketing lead would come through. And then you can start to build on it, right? It's setting a foundation of quality stuff that is going to close. It has repeatable sales funnel metrics that are in way more efficient than what we're doing right now. And then we figure out how do we get to go from, you know, 20 SQOs to 50, to 80, to 100. And so it's starting at the most companies look at volume as the only lever to scale marketing. And so instead of looking at, okay, our conversion rates are 0.1% on these leads. Maybe we should think about something that has a better conversion rate. They just think, oh, we need to get this much pipeline. So we need to get 7,000 more leads every month. And I just think it's so interesting because if you, if you optimize first for conversion and then for volume, then you would be able to get to those outcomes in a far more efficient way, far more buyer-centric way, far more business-centric way. And so that's another thing I'm thinking about. Getting into the, the side of attribution, I think that specifically in awareness channels, that companies have attribution all wrong. The reason that they have to do the things that they do is because they're, like I mentioned, they're handcuffed by attribution. So it's no fault to marketers. It's no fault potentially to CMOs, but it's whoever sets the metrics that's creating this behavior. And it's the only behavior that you can create because of the metrics that have been set. And if you stripped that away, I want to tell a couple of stories about how I learned this in attribution. One was when it was about 2014, 15, I was trying to sell blankets on, on with Instagram ads. Instagram ads to a Shopify store or just direct on Amazon. And in this instance, I was trying to sell, drive people to my website for a $60 blanket, add to cart, checkout, common performance marketing, e-commerce play. And when I was running the ads, here's what I saw. Because I was watching real-time Google Analytics and I was watching the ads run and people would hit our site from the ad with the ad UTMs. They would go through, they might add to cart, they might bounce, and then, but nobody checked out. But at the same time that I was running those ads, I saw people that came through attributed to organic search that would go through and complete the process and buy. I was like, what's going on here? And then I started to think, oh, the people are seeing the ads on Instagram, but they don't want to check out on mobile. They're going to go back to a different device where they actually buy things e-commerce and they're going to go through and search the brand in Google, which gets attributed to organic search. And then they're going to go through and they're going to buy it that way. And there was a light bulb that went off to me there where paid social drives organic indirect conversions through that influence that most people never see. And then another time in 2017, 18 at a venture funded company, we started spending aggressively on Facebook ads. We were targeting people say that, you know, my buyer doesn't use Facebook and Instagram. My buyers don't do that. We're selling professional stuff, professionals spend time on LinkedIn. And when we looked at the data about the people that we were targeting who were emergency physicians, ER nurses, um, respiratory therapists, clinicians, that most of them were consuming on Facebook and Instagram. And so we started to run content, not ads, content. Here's a video of a physician speaking about a clinical trial that they just did that, that talks about how our product is better than the one that you're using right now. Or here's a link to the clinical trial on its own about here it was, and you can read it in this medical journal about the thing that you learned. And so we started to do those types of things. 
And I saw the exact same effect as we kept spending more on Facebook, had more impressions that were well-targeted. More people came through organic search, last touch attribution, which is also first touch attribution in this case, and asked for a demo. And when we looked at the demo funnel, the conversion rates were incredible relative to outbound or any other way. And so I started to see a pattern there that I didn't know how to measure. I didn't know how to prove in 2014 or 2018. And then around last summer, we had an innovation inside of our company where we started to use custom conversions inside of Facebook and Instagram. We also use this almost the exact same flow in LinkedIn at this point now, where if somebody saw or clicked on an ad inside of Facebook and then later went back on a different device that they were also at once time logged into Facebook and converted on our demo form and hit the thank you page, then we could attribute that back to a specific campaign in, a, in an anonymous attribution way to understand which campaigns are actually influenced or which audiences or which ads or which messaging are actually influencing the demos. And the craziest thing that we saw is that 80% of the people that eventually converted on the demo from the ad never clicked on the ad. They just saw the ad. And these are not retargeting audience because I know that would mess up the data. This is cold audiences. They just saw the ad consume the message over a period of time and then converted versus they clicked and then they converted straight away on that same device or they clicked and converted later, which was a huge insight for us. It proved the effect that I've been seeing for almost 10 years now. And it gave us clear data that the people are consuming the information in the feed and we need to do a better job telling the story in the feed, not trying to get them to leave and go to a landing page. So at this point now, we've adjusted the strategy to where the landing page is, is extra. My main job is to figure out how do I communicate a message that resonates with people where they don't need to leave the platform because you're going to get a lot of impressions and your you know, industry benchmark, you know, you're knocking out of the park on LinkedIn or Facebook if you have a 1% click-through rate. And I would rather have the content delivered to 100% of the people in the feed than just 1% of people that click to go to my landing page. And so I've adjusted the strategy on that one as well. And so from an attribution standpoint, I'm telling you what, what the effect is when you do these things on these certain channels in this way. And I ha we have mechanisms to show the impact of it over time, as privacy issues continue seeing the iOS 14 things, over time, it will start to impact LinkedIn as well. And that type of data will not be accessible anymore. So I highly recommend if, you're, if you want to do this, that you prove it out right now, because some of that data might not be available in the future. Um, we proved it out last summer. And at this point, iOS 14 has happened, and we can't, we can't see almost anything inside of Facebook or Instagram, but we proved out the models. So executives saw that we drove 73 demos on Facebook ads, which was, you know, 50% of their total demo volume through Facebook. So now that we don't have attribution anymore, we still have confidence to run on the channel because all the metrics in Salesforce are indicating that it's still working. And so when I try and round out the point of attribution, it's truly about acknowledging and understanding the way that people actually buy things and the way that people actually discover things and the way that people actually want to get information versus the way that you as a marketer or a business professional or a salesperson wish they bought. And so as I've continued, and I've done plenty of surveys 
high scale surveys, as well as tons of qualitative information across tons of different buyer segments about how people buy things. I have a deep respect for it instead of resisting it and trying to fight people and try and sell the way that I wish I could sell so that it was easy and things came, you know, I had attribution and all that different stuff. I just lean into the way that people actually want to buy things, which creates a huge competitive advantage for my company and the, some of the companies that we do work for anyone that implements the strategy. And so I'm sure that there'll be a, a couple questions on attribution. I'll leave it at that for right now, but would invite anyone that's wondering at a more tactical or philosophical level to ask a question when we get to Q&A. The next promised topic on the agenda, which is something I feel incredibly passionate about because I just, because of where I came from and what the companies that I've worked for in the past cared about, which was pipeline and revenue, not MQL volume or cost per MQL, that I've been communicating for several years to people that declining MQL volume, if using the right strategy, is actually a really good thing. And so when we go and help companies do this, what we do is a process that I call split the funnel. There's plenty of content on YouTube or our podcast about it. Several people that have just listened to the way that I say it and then went and actually implemented this for themselves, which could take somewhere between a, a day and a month, depending on how, you know, how mature and sophisticated your data is. And we split the funnel based on if you look at all marketing source leads and all marketing source revenue and try and calculate all of the sales metrics between the lead and the revenue from lead to win percentage, number of SQOs, conversion rates, sales cycle length, win rates, ACVs, all those different metrics, it will become very clear to you which things that you're doing against the spend and the effort that you're spending, which things are a complete waste of money. And it's not hard to do this analysis if you have a basic marketing operations or sales ops set up with proper data, which I imagine most people on this, on this Zoom do have. And so you can just pull a report. You need a leads report. You need an opportunities report. You need some sales efficiency, things like win rate and close one and close lost. And you can actually go and look at these things. And I, we go and show companies that there are lead sources that they have that they're not really paying attention to that are low volume, that have incredible conversion rates and have tons of scalability. And then they take all of their advertising dollars and all of their effort on their demand gen team to go and create a bunch of MQLs to hit an MQL target over here. And none of them are closing or typically the number that I see is 0.1% of leads that are collected that way actually become a customer. So one in a thousand, um, which is a terrible efficiency metric if you have a human filtering those through like an SDR or something. And so the reason that how I got here was having an incredible empathy for sales, uh, both at the SDR and at the AE level of being like, I never want to send my AE because at that point when we were doing this, we didn't have an SDR layer. Inbound leads went directly to account executives. And so when I was running tests about this, if I was doing a performance marketing test and I ran an ebook and I was going to cold call someone, I called them to understand whether or not they were, they were going to be good and whether or not I should keep doing that advertising and whether or not that should go to an AE. And almost every single type of lead that I did that for and I called, I've never heard of you before. I don't remember filling out that form. I don't want to talk to you or I couldn't connect with them. And I was like, I don't want to waste my salesperson's time to go and actually do that. I need to figure out what are the lead sources that actually want to talk to our rep. And what, what I found and what I always find in companies is there's two main conversion points that have dramatically higher win rates, dramatically shorter sales cycles, um, way more you know, ultimate scalability, contribute somewhere between 60 and 80% of total rev, marketing source revenue for companies, which is either a demo 
a pricing or a contact us CTA on their website, which all three have declared buying intent that somebody is interested in buying the product and wants to talk to a sales rep about buying something, which perfectly aligns with how people want to buy. And so when they see that and they see that 80% of their revenue is coming from 4% of their leads, it's much more easy to show them that, hey, maybe we need to read, maybe the model is wrong. Maybe our demand waterfall from 2011 is wrong. Not, not the fact that we, need, that we need to get more leads. Maybe we need to rethink what the model is. And if we remodeled out based on these conversion rates with these people that have buying intent, then we could grow dramatically with way less leads than we generated last year. And I want to pull something up. I printed it out because just because it's top of mind, I posted it today. But I'm talking about a year-over-year comparison with a Series E uh, you know, SaaS company that proves this point. And we see, I mean, this is a really awesome case. I wouldn't say that this is typical, but uh, it shows that MQLs can go down and it's actually a good thing for the business. So um, with this customer, MQLs went down year over year after deciding to work with us by 96%, from 36,000 to 1,200. Sales qualified opportunities generated through marketing went up by 181%, from 180 to 506. Qualified pipeline also went up by 181%, showing that the deal sizes were exactly the same, essentially. Sales cycle length went down from 173 days to 70 days by 60% reduction in sales cycle length. And so there's massive velocity improvement when you're actually talking to people that want to buy. Their win rates went up by 39% relatively from 22% to 31%. Pretty dramatic increase in, in qualified op win rates just by talking to people that want to buy. When you put all of those metrics together, and it's a really important metric that I've been, I think that most marketers want to align on long-term, it's called pipeline velocity, which combines ACV, sales cycle length, win rate, and number of qualified opportunities generated during the same, same period. Their pipeline velocity went up by 486%, which is a measure of how fast and how much pipeline moves through your funnel over a period of time. And their marketing CAC went down by 34% total. And it all started by having a 96% reduction in MQLs. And so, and, and before that, it started at just looking at where the revenue is coming from and then reverse engineering the funnel based on where, they are, where the existing revenue is coming from and having the intuition that you, you know and how, how to scale it. And so anyone could do that, that analysis pretty, pretty quickly or someone on your marketing ops team could is just to look at where the revenue is coming from and then compare that against where you're at spending your, mu- your money and your advertising with the understanding that attribution is highly flawed. Not in, ad- in advertising, especially the way that most B2B companies do it, it's black and white because it's all direct response, it's all performance marketing, it's all tracked. And so for advertising, for me or anyone else, it's very easy to go back and look at that against revenue because it's all tracked. When you think about some of the other things that I've talked about in the way that we do marketing, it's a lot more difficult to track, and I'd be happy to answer a question on on sort of how we uh, how we reconcile that. But I'll go into it real quick right now, which is the idea that um, we align with companies on one holistic funnel, which is we want people to come through the website, ask for a demo, aka declare intent that are firmographically qualified. That if we wanted to, we could pass directly to an account executive because that lead or qualified account, however you want to look at it is going to convert into a sales qualified opportunity somewhere between 40 and 60%. I don't need an SDR 
to qualify that, that person. They're firmographically qualified. They ask for a demo and the conversion rates are super high. I don't need that layer anymore. And so that's how we align on a funnel. And then all of the advertising and all of the organic work that we're doing is all driven on educating and informing buyers in places that they are so that more people come through and do that flow when they're ready to buy. I see in the data and I just my intuition tells me that B2B buyers know what to do when they want to buy enterprise SaaS. They go to the website and they figure out a way to convert if it's if it's sales led and it's not they don't have a product led or a free trial motion. B2B buyers know what to do. And so I just guide them into that process through pure education of the things that we believe in. The last thing on the agenda, we got we got tips for getting traction when you have a small budget and big pipeline goals, but we are I just talked for a really long time. I hope there's some some people still here because I can't see anyone in the audience. So I would love to uh, to pass by this topic and move to questions. Great talk here, and you know, you know, I talk a, a lot of, to our, you know, work with a lot of our companies on a daily daily basis, as as I've shared, and I, and I know you know, and you you, know, you t- I think we're all aligned generally that yeah, maybe you know, gating is going away. You know, let's give the content away for free. I think you even said in one of our conversations, oh, I don't even have time to write a blog, right? I do my podcast. And so, and in preparation for this, as the registrations were, were rolling in, I did some analysis on the companies that registered. And 76% of uh, the folks that registered for this event have gated content on their website. And, and one of those companies has a podcast. Does that surprise you? <laughs> I wouldn't say that that surprises me. No, it didn't surprise me either. And and but one of the questions I, I think is weighing on people's minds is, and there's sort of a, two parts to this question. It's like if, if you're just getting started, because we have a lot of Series A companies in our portfolio, for example, right? And like they're just starting from scratch, like from a standstill. They don't have a database. You know, they don't have much web traffic. Um, so, what would be your advice for you know how to to get started, how to get moving? Um, if we believe that one in a thousand leads is going to turn into the deal, but you've got to get business going, how do you how do you get going? Just generally or on a specific tactic? Well, just they don't have much of a database, right? So like if, if you don't have a database, your inclination is going to be, oh, I got to get leads, right? I got to have someone to talk to. I have to create an audience because I don't have anyone. I don't have anyone I can email. I don't really have a lot of web traffic yet. So I've got to put gated content out there so I can start to build my database. Like that's going to be the mindset or the, maybe the fear that holds people back. Yeah. So what would you say? And again, like if it's the B2B environment, it's like early stage company, would you recommend that folks, you know, start developing a bunch of content and putting, pushing it out via paid social, for example, who do they follow up with? Like who can they, you know, engage with directly? I'd love to just help rewind for people where the idea of gated content came from. And so think back about why gated content exists. Gated content exists because it started in marketing automation with forms to push people through email nurtures for the sole reason that at that point, contact information was not easily accessible for the sales team. So marketing had to source it somehow by offering some type of offer. And the easiest offer is some type of content. So more people convert in order to get people that the sales team could call. And today we have Zoom Info and a ton of other data platforms where sales can go in there and access any of that information on their own and do whatever they want. And so I just seriously question, like, why do people value a marketing database 
as much as they do mm-hmm. because that the world in the, in the place where that was built and the reason that it was built doesn't exist anymore. Sales can get to the, the, any person that they want. They can go onto LinkedIn and access them on a DM straight away if they wanted to. They could invite them onto their podcast and have a conversation and ask them what's going on in their world, even if it wasn't a real podcast. They could go into any type of data platform, take that contact information, call them, email them, send them a letter, anything that they wanted to. And so I just don't see... If you look at it just objectively, I just don't see the reason why companies still obsess and optimize for that anymore for that reason. Um, Would you, though, like, so another dynamic I see at early stage companies is there's this desire to, well, we better go buy all this data that we don't have, right? And so like they'll go to Discover or Zoom and just download like thousands and thousands of records and that becomes their marketing database. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you're saying is, well, don't do that. Like, why do we need this database? Like, yes, you can go after them uh, from an outbound perspective, but you're not going to be loading tens of thousands of names or into your database from those sources. Yeah. And it just comes down. If you, if you purely just look at the data and you can, anyone can do this for himself and look for what is the actual difference between our marketing MQLs that our sales team is calling versus someone they just pull out of zoom info. And it's probably not that dramatically different because the percentages are so low in terms of efficiency that mm-hmm. perhaps it just is not, it's just not needed anymore. And the core pain that people need to understand that this system creates is that it prevents marketers from doing actual marketing and creating demand in the market, which is the most important thing the company could do. Right. Buyers have moved to a place where in 2011, they didn't have the information they needed to make a purchasing process. So they needed sales to help them. That world no longer exists anymore. Marketing's main job is to create, educate buyers and create demand in the market for their product, their category, their brand, so that people come in ready to buy. Mm-hmm. And the way that companies set up the metrics are still set in a 2011 world where sales needs to run most of the process, which is no longer true. And it hand, like there's just a lot of things that handcuffs marketers into a place where they can't do the things that are most effective in the world today and that are most helpful for their buyers. Right. So like somebody was asking, well, do we just rip the bandaid off? Like, so, so taking the flip side of that, some, a company that's further along, got a big content library, big resources library, they've got some good traction, they've got some web traffic. Would you recommend just ripping the bandaid off in terms of like, hey, why are we gating all this content versus let's push it out via paid social or just organic social and the buyers will educate themselves and then come to us when they're ready? And how do you make that case to a CFO who, or even a board member who's saying, hey, what's this, you know, we got to keep the machine rolling. Yeah. Like what's the, there's, there's practicality, right? And then, you know, in real life versus, you know, this larger like aspirational vision. Yeah. So with plenty of companies that we work with and using your words, we just rip the bandaid off. The reason that we're able to rip the bandaid off is because first, we analyze the success of those campaigns against revenue and show executives what's happening. And so at any point, we can look at somebody that engaged with that campaign, if it's pushed through Marketo in an ebook and look trailing 12 months at how many people became opportunities or became customers and see how low it is that there's no sense in gating it because it's entirely ineffective against the revenue strategy relative to other ways that we're getting money. So interesting. So you do look at the, like we put money in this campaign and like these people came through, so we you can do some level of attribution. Is that 
Is that accurate? On a gated ebook, absolutely. I'm going to look at anyone that's ever responded to this campaign. Yeah. Last 12 months and how many people and any, you know, any basic setup could track that. And it doesn't have to be the source of the opportunity. It just needs to be uh, a response to a campaign that eventually became an opportunity. And even then, very few people get that far. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at revenue, it's even, it's, it's even worse. And so by presenting that data, it becomes very clear to executives that we can rip the Band-Aid off because it's not working. But there's alternative ways that people can do it. The reason to ungate content is, I think, twofold. One, that it aligns your company around metrics that matter, not MQLs. And so if you stopped measuring on MQLs, then it would de-incentivize you to care about gating content. But the more important one is that it needs to change your entire content strategy and execution, right? So just ungating your stuff and leaving it on your website, I don't think is going to do a big, make a big impact for you. I think people are going to be able to access it and it might help a little bit. But the true reason to do it is so that you can change your content strategy away from the five tips about how to do this so that the most people download it to things that actually matter to your customer and in formats that the customers like. And then you can use distribution in a different way because you don't need to collect an email address or use a lead form on LinkedIn ads or put a form on your website. So you can put that out and that, that information on a podcast. You could put it into a slide deck on LinkedIn. You could put it into an ad on LinkedIn and let people swipe through a slide deck. There's a million things that you could do. It needs to change your overall content strategy to be way more buyer centric as opposed to headlines and different things like that that either make people want to download it or just a lead into some type of sales pitch right and it used to change the the distribution strategy well so let's talk for a second I, I see more comments coming in about you know well but my sales team depends on those leads to stay busy right and like how long would you, do you think it would take a company if they ripped the band-aid off and said okay we're not getting anything so obviously overnight leads would go down we know that and how long do you think it would take to, to start to get that organic traction such that your sales team you know, what is going to be busy? I mean, they could always do outbound, right? But there's going to be some dependence on inbound as well that you as a marketer want to drive. So what would you say to the question about how long would I expect for this to, to take hold? It's funny because the, of how the question was framed. I'm just going to repeat it back. How do I keep these people busy? Versus how or how do I make them productive, right? And so it's, it's a really interesting mind frame here. This is an entire organizational go-to-market shift, right? You're not going to make one change in a vacuum and make everything. You ha- it has to be an organizational shift of we're moving away from our 2011 demand waterfall, high MQL, low efficiency model driven through SDRs to something that's way more biocentric and, and way more productive, right? So it needs to be a holistic change. You can make little ones and have improvements, but it really is an organizational shift. The first place to start, and I would encourage people to think about this, is how do you define a lead? I go into companies and they have very, really poor definitions of what a lead is. And so if you change the definition of a lead, it would completely change what you did in, in marketing, right? For most companies, a lead is a is you have an email address and they did something. Right. Like, and that becomes a lead. And so if you redefined it to they, they did this, they asked to talk to a sales rep and they meet these criteria, then it becomes a lead. Then it completely shifts your overall strategy. What companies are doing just to be on it, just to be direct with what's going on. What companies do when they implement our model for the most part is they move 
Some will keep inbound SDRs. Other companies will send them directly to account executives based on conversion rates and what they're doing for the organization and how they want to improve buying experience. I'm indifferent on those ones. I think that sending high intent leads that converted that rate directly to account executives is just purely a better buying experience. And that's my recommendation, but companies can do whichever one they want. And then on the outbound side, companies are transitioning to some level of ABM intent data source moving to outbound. So the outbound is triggered off of some type of third or first party intent data, as opposed to getting someone to fill out some form. And the initial data that we're showing is that moving in that direction is actually more effective and it lets your entire marketing team do real marketing. And so that's a potential recommendation to keep people busy and also make them more productive. Yeah, because somebody asked in the Q&A, is cold calling still, is cold outbound calling still relevant to hit a particular persona or audience? Um, Or do you believe that it's dying a slow death? And Mm -hmm. so I think that's where your ABM motion can come into play because no, you're not just going to, you know, go after any and every account. You're going to go after your accounts you really need to, that have like the perfect fit for your ICP. Totally. Uh, I have access to plenty of Salesforce data. I'm not going to argue at the idea that cold calling can work because I see how much I see how much revenue it gets generated. I also see how much marketing source revenue grows when we're in there. And so it's not like you need to do one of the other things. What I want to communicate on this point is the idea of what could you do differently in terms of having a modern business development engine that would make your outbound work better. And the example that I usually give to people at this point is that we have a podcast that, that 15,000 marketers listen to, including all the way up to CMO. And I have a LinkedIn following of almost 70,000 people. And that's not a humble brag. It's to show this point is that how much better do you think that my outbound on a LinkedIn DM would work to a CMO versus an account executive that's purely transactional running automation through LinkedIn DM? And so the idea of what I'm trying to, to communicate is that if you had account executives or industry experts, however you want to look at them, that were doing some of these things on their own, which built credibility and relationships that your outbound could get dramatically more effective, but it would require you to not try and go for that conversion tomorrow, which is challenging for a lot of companies. I'm not going to argue that. There's a ton of infrastructure and and goals and different things that create those behaviors, but I'm just telling, uh, communicating what I'm seeing as a profitable non-venture funded company and the things that are working for us. Got it. Should we hit on some of these others or? I'm down to keep going. Yeah, I know we yeah, got Yeah, let's. Uh, do you want to talk about the deprecation of third party cookies? Um, what's in, Carlene asked, what's the new plan for retargeting? Where are you moving budget? Yeah, so I sort of I alluded to it a little bit. It's not necessarily related to third party cookies, but the loss of attribution inside of Facebook and Instagram with custom conversions, which I think is driven on privacy and some of the similar things. My view on the loss of third party cookies is that it gives strong marketers a massive advantage. Marketers that understand their customer deeply, know where they hang out, create content that they love, put it in places where they are, engage with them like a human so that they learn, they build relationships, things like that. Like marketing fundamentals 101, strong marketers will win in the the cookie-less world because they have that stuff. While the rest of marketers that have relied on Google's algorithm to go out and run and get leads that are not good and do retargeting plays and then measure on view through conversions with the display retargeting, which is a complete facade. Instead of doing when they've done those and then it gets taken away, they don't even know what marketing fundamentals are. And so I, I truly believe that 
the top class of marketers will continue to widen from the average marketer and top marketers will continue to get farther and farther ahead of those people, which is, it's, it's weird because the, you know, I'm going deep into tactics and different things like that, but I'm a, like a product marketer at, at the core of where, where I grew up. And so like, you know, spending a ton of time with customers, understanding what's going on in the world, testing messaging for myself and sales and other conversations, doing market research and surveys, listening to the feedback they're giving me and then, and then going with that, that's number one for me. And so marketers that are able to do that. And one of the things that I'm trying to communicate to companies broadly right now is that most companies set up their metrics and their incentive programs so that marketers would not do those things, especially demand gen marketers. And so they don't are not incentivized to run on certain channels. They're not incentivized to do a podcast because of lack of attribution. They're not incentivized to engage or start a community because there's no attribution to that activity. There's, there's a, they're not in, incentivized to post on organic social because it doesn't give credit in the way that the systems are set up. And I would argue that the things that I just listed that most marketers aren't incentivized to do are the most effective things that a B2B company could do right now with their buyer. Mm-hmm. And, so, and it, starts with the, it starts with the measurement. You've talked in your podcast about, you know, how you built a community and, you know, you started from scratch and it took a couple of years. Like what if for someone is just starting, like what are some of the community building strategies that, you know, you think marketers could lean into and, and does it depend on what kind of business you're in? Like I would assume there's not a one size fits all to community building. No, there's not a one size fits all, but I'll talk through my journey because the things that I know now, I didn't know two years ago. So I'll just talk through some of the things that I did. So I think at the core, before you start doing anything, you need to truly understand who your customer is. And I think that most companies don't execute this well. I think they go for a, a, a target that's too wide so they can report a bigger TAM to investors and get a better valuation multiple. And you don't need to report that to investors, but I would encourage you to think about how can I sub-segment my customer base even further to the people that need my product? that we are have a dramatic competitive advantage to win because of X, Y, and Z relative to other options or what they're doing right now. And so starting with who your target customer is, one way that I got there is that at the beginning when I was getting started, I just did LinkedIn outbound to VPs of marketing and CMOs at companies that were way out of my league at that point, at least in terms of how people thought about me. And I invited them on my podcast, which wasn't a real podcast. We recorded it and put it on YouTube and almost nobody watched it, but I got an hour to talk with that CMO or that VP of marketing about what they're, what they're doing, what they're struggling with, what they're implementing. So nobody watched it yet. You carried on, right? That's interesting. Because it was for market research, not for content creation. Right. right. Uh, but the, the, the positioning of a podcast gets more people to say yes. And yeah. so we're able to have those conversations, which allowed us to get deeper into our ICP, which we continue to refine and refine. And so that would be sort of like one recommendation is get very deep on who those people are. Once you know who they are, then it's trying to figure out what is the unique like value that I can provide to those people that other people aren't doing. And I wouldn't, I would encourage you to not even look at what other people are doing. Right. If I looked and was like, you know, there's, there's a bunch of marketing podcasts out there. There's a bunch of people talking on LinkedIn about marketing. Like nobody wants to listen to me. It's too crowded. It's too competitive. I'll just, start blogging or cold calling or whatever. And so by identifying what's unique, then you can start to provide value. And then the next thing is on your mindset, right? So I'm on this event. I have 
absolutely no intention of having any of you ever work with us, right? And and I say that some people will believe me, some people won't, but it's true. And I bring that to every single time that I create content. That is my intention is that I help more people. And I know that when I help more people, good things will come back to me. Well, like yesterday, I sent you the list and you didn't write me back saying, where's the email addresses? I didn't even look at the, the attachment, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, like, and like, we're not going to be following up with people to sell them on Refine Labs after this. And so it's the having that type of mindset allows you to truly help people. And so, and then once you start truly helping people, it's just a revolving wheel. Like I've set it up where I create something, I analyze the qualitative data, which again, marketers aren't incentivized to look at. So what are people commenting? What questions are they asking? I'm going to look at this chat and see all the things that were, were said here as a form of market research so that I can use that to fuel future content. And all I'm doing is creating, listening, creating, listening, analyzing, analyzing, creating, listening, creating, listening, analyzing. And it's just, I just follow what my, what's going on and what my customers are doing, what they're struggling with, what's relevant with the pure um, mindset, which I would encourage every B2B company to take is once I segment off that specific group of people, how do I create the best content on the internet for those people. That's it. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know we're just a little past the top of the hour. And well, for the questions that we didn't get to, Chris, like how can people post them and, and you'll um, respond in on your social feed? Yeah, so if people have questions, if you wouldn't mind going to LinkedIn, Chris Walker, I'll show up. If you send them to me in a LinkedIn DM, we do. I do a live show tonight at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. And I can answer some of those questions tonight. And then, you know, you could catch them on the podcast tomorrow because we record and publish quickly. So um, all, all that stuff would be live tomorrow if you want to get your question answered. Love it. Um, well, this has been great. I've been so thrilled to have you. Really been looking forward to this chat. And I know there's going to be a lot of follow-up too, just in terms of people wanting to, to hear your point of view on things. And want to just do a quick shout out to uh, our next community event, uh, July 20th. Uh, we'll be featuring John Miller of Demandbase and Lisa Sharapata um, of MindTickle, both like heavy ABM uh, users. Um, so hope you can all join us for that session. And in closing, a big thanks to you, Chris. Um, loved working with you on this and hope uh, for more opportunities in the future to get you in front of our audience. You too. Thanks, everyone. Great to have you here. I hope you found it valuable and uh, look forward to building relationships with you outside of uh, this event later. Awesome. Bye. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.